Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. After a few weeks away, we're back in Galatians and we'll be moving through it faster than we did over the holidays. And if you're new to our church or new to the Bible, that's fine. You will be able to jump right in with us. And if you don't have a Bible or an ESV, which is the version that we use, feel free to punch in Galatians 3 ESV on your mobile device and follow along that way. Or at any time, you're welcome uh, to get up and head to the lobby and grab a copy of the Bible. We got extra copies there for you if you prefer a physical over a digital copy. 20th century British pastor and preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones famously described preaching as logic on fire. And that would be a great subtitle for the book of Galatians. Logic on fire. For the Apostle Paul is spitting fire. Chapter by chapter, sentence by sentence, line by line, building his case from the Bible, history, and theology that God redeems us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. We find ourselves in the middle of chapter 3, in the middle of one of his lines of logic, which is on fire. At the beginning of this chapter, he asked, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, all the spiritual blessings that come to us through the gospel have nothing to do with our good deeds and everything to do with God's gracious, unearned kindness to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the, God, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, the central fact of the gospel, the death of Christ on the cross is an eternal fountain that just keeps flowing with undeserved blessings to you and me. And we take part in those blessings by hearing and believing by faith, not by our works. Every other religious system in the world teaches you that you got to figure this thing out. You got to get the blessings of understanding and peace and nirvana or whatever by something you do, your works. And Christianity teaches that you get the blessings simply by receiving them from God. In the previous paragraph, verses 10 through 14, Paul argued that if we rely on our works of the law, to secure God's blessing, we will instead receive his curse. For we do not keep the law in its entirety, and therefore we deserve its promised punishments, but Christ hung on a tree, taking the curse for us, so that we would receive the blessings he alone deserves. And now, in verses 15 through 18, today's passage, Paul shows that these blessings come to us by way of God's promise. A word and concept he hinted at in verse 14, but now picks up and explains. What has God promised to his people? What's the nature of that promise? Is it possible to miss out on that promise or cancel that promise? Should we stake our very lives and eternity on that promise? 
We will find the answers to those questions as we read. So follow along in your Bibles as I read Galatians 3, verses 15 through 18, and then I'll pray. Verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The very words of God. Please join me in a brief prayer for the Spirit to help us understand, believe, and treasure them. Lord, in a given day, we hear many words, we speak many words, but none are as important as the words on this page in this book. Your word is the most important. And we've heard it. Now, Lord, help us to truly grasp its meaning. Nurture our intellects, sure, but, but Lord, we ask that you would touch our hearts as well. Help us to know that we can trust you, live for you, believe in you because of the words on this page. Give us true understanding, understanding that transforms us rather than merely informing us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Just this week, my family and I welcomed a fifth member into our home. He's a bit furrier than the rest of us. He's a dog. His name's Keeper. We got him on Wednesday. So this week, uh, I was not planning on it, but I've spent a portion of my time watching dog training videos to get myself up to speed on how I can help Keeper overcome some of his behavioral issues, which thankfully are very minor. He's a very good dog. We say that to him a lot because he is. He's a good dog. But one of the points the trainers repeatedly make is that even when the dog misbehaves, you don't want to lash out at them in a mean or frustrated or angry way. You need to be calm but firm and insistent and then quick to praise when the dog stops doing the wrong thing and starts doing the right thing. No matter the dog's behavior, you want to reassure him over and over and over again that you love him and that you're for him, that you're pleased with him. Now, that has stuck with me because I already love Keeper, even after only five days, and it pains me to think that I could make him feel worthless or stupid or unwanted, but I know I'm capable of that. 
I mean, imagine a dog who simply wants to please you and be with you, whose inner emotional life is much less sophisticated than yours. Imagine that dog feeling hated and despised and not knowing what to do about it. It's a heartbreaking thought, you know, a dog in that situation. Now, I don't want to take this analogy too far, so stick with me. If we're honest, we can often feel like God is an angry dog owner and we're the despised, disobedient canine. I've done it again, yelled again, wasted time again, overindulged again, chewed on the rug again. No, I hope you're not chewing on the rug. Our repeated sins and missteps and disobedience wear us down. Surely, God must be ready to give up on me, assuming he hasn't already. Punishment's coming. The hammer is about to drop. I mean, do you ever feel that way when you think about God? Are thoughts of God sometimes not very comforting because you've sunk into the despair that you feel because you're a bad person (laughs) and you know it. I do. I despair sometimes because I'm a bad person and I know it. If you don't think I'm a bad person, you don't know me very well. Those feelings of insecurity and fear that assault Christians, they do so in part because we misunderstand how God relates to us. Here's the truth of the the matter. Our relationship with God is based entirely on His promise, not our performance. Your relationship with God is based entirely on His promise and not your performance. Paul's opponents in Galatia were slinging mud all over that truth. Well, well, wait a minute. There's stuff you need to do to make sure you can secure God's favor and blessing. If you don't do certain parts of the Old Testament law, they argued, you can't be sure that you're receiving the blessing promised to Abraham. That's what they were contending, and Paul is fighting tooth and nail against that kind of teaching. He, he argues that you can be confident today, tomorrow, every day, in fact, because it is God's promise of what he's going to do that secures your status with him, not your performance. This is a passage, and this is a sermon, where we must think long and hard about what a promise is and understand it biblically speaking, because we need to be people individually and a church collectively that stakes itself on God's promise, on what God does, not what we do. So three things I want to take you through from this passage. Three points. I'll give them to you as we go. Three things we must understand about God's promise to Abraham, and ultimately to us. Three things about his promise. I'll give them to you as we go. Point number one, God's promise is permanent. His promise is permanent. Verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, 
No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, Paul uses the words covenant and promise interchangeably in this passage, so I'm not going to spend a bunch of time dicing between what exactly those words mean. He's, he, he moves back and forth between them, and he begins here by using an analogy, human covenants or agreements or contracts to illustrate his point. In an agreement between two parties, this, isn't, this is obvious, you can't alter the the promise once it's been finalized, or the contract once it's been finalized. Once the dotted lines have been signed, you can't add to it or take away from it according to your own whims. A deal's a deal, right? And God made a deal, an agreement, a covenant, a promise to a man named Abraham. In verse 17, Paul refers to it as a covenant previously ratified by God. In other words, God made an agreement and he signed it. And this promise is a major feature of the, um, the, the Bible's unfolding storyline. Take you back to this in a little bit. In fact, if you were here when we went through the book of Genesis, this, this would be a review for you. And it begins in Genesis chapter 12 where God calls Abraham to leave his home and his family to go to another land where God will make his family into a great nation that will spread blessing to every nation. Continues in chapter 15 when God promises the same thing in a different way, saying, Abraham's offspring will be more numerous than the stars in the sky, and these offspring will dwell in a promised land in the Middle East. And in chapter 15, we see the covenant signed, ratified. This is what Paul's referring to, and Paul's original audience would have been very familiar with this. This is why we have to do a little bit of extra work, because we're not all Old Testament scholars. Let me read this to you. This is the moment Paul's referring to in verse 17 when it was ratified. You don't need to turn there. This is from Genesis 15. Just read and uh, just listen and I'll read. Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abraham brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. That's what Paul's talking about. And this whole scene may seem a little strange to us, wasn't as strange for the original audience. This was how two men signed an agreement back in those days. They cut animals in half, walked through them. Sounds a little strange, but it meant something. By doing so, they were saying, if I fail to keep up my end of the agreement, may I be torn in half like these animals. Graphic, no doubt, but effective. This is the moment. The covenant with Abraham was ratified by God. But notice something very important, very strange. Abraham didn't walk between the animals. Only God did. Abraham was asleep. The smoking pot and the flaming torch represent the presence of the holy God. God alone said, if, if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant, let me be torn in two like these animals. And by never walking through, Abraham never signed their deal. The only signature on this promise, on this covenant, is God's. He is the only one who signed it. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, that covenant can
cannot be annulled or canceled or changed in any way. God promised it. He will do it. It is a permanent promise. Now, in verse 14, just before our paragraph, Paul wrote, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, the blessings promised to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to to you and I, non-Jews. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we receive this blessing promised to Abraham. God becomes our God. We are counted among a people that will bring blessing to all people. This is what was promised to Abraham. We will live forever in a promised land of peace and prosperity with God and one another. God promised that blessing to Abraham, to us. And the only condition, if we can even call it a condition, is faith. That we believe it. That we receive it. Our works, our observance of the law, our obedience is not the deciding factor in our relationship with God. In fact, Paul makes the point in verse 17 that the law came 430 years after the promise. This is just, this is just smart what he's doing here. Law came 430 years after the promise. You can't say that the law was part of the agreement. It didn't even exist when they made the agreement written and signed before there was any law, and it can't be changed. Look, our, our law-keeping in whatever form it takes, our obedience isn't the deciding factor in our status with God. Now, that's important. I'm not saying that our obedience doesn't matter at all. I'm just saying it's not the deciding factor in our status with God. Our status is fixed. It's it's established by his promise. It always has been. But it is very hard to believe that. We are so wired to be works-oriented and to want to trust in ourselves or despair because of ourselves. It is very hard to believe that your status is absolutely secured by what God has done, what he has promised, and is in no way dependent on what you've done. And it is very hard to believe that in a way that brings real daily comfort to your heart, especially when you feel guilty for the ever-growing pile of sins you commit. Which makes me think of a moment from Star Wars. I am a nerd after all, so lots of things make me think of Star Wars. A moment in The Emperor Strikes Back where Lando Calrissian is upset with Darth Vader for changing an agreement they had made. Vader responds menacingly and iconically, I'm altering the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. But we tend to think God is altering his deal with us, don't we? I felt like God loved me. I felt like he accepted me as long as I was doing pretty good as a Christian, for as long as I judged that I was doing pretty good as a Christian, but now that I'm struggling, he, he must be giving up on me. In other words, he's altering the deal, and I better pray he doesn't alter it any further. When you feel that way, well, you should listen again to Paul's logic. The deal God made, the promise he made can't be altered won't be changed. God won't go back on it. It's permanent. If our sense of 
God's acceptance of us rises and falls on the tides of our obedience and our progress in the faith, listen, it's going to be a really bumpy ride. That's not what God intends. He intends for us to feel absolutely sure that we have his love, his affection, his acceptance, his, his commitment. The only real question is, do I believe that? Do I believe that he will keep his promise? Well, we should ask ourselves that question over and over and over again when we begin to despair, focus too much on our track record. If the answer is yes, then I can be sure, even if my faith is weak, that God is going to bless me and keep me. And that all the promises he makes the great and precious promises he makes to those who love him will come true for me. Because my relationship with him is based entirely on his permanent promise, not my pitiful performance. He will save us and bless us because he promised he would. And he's not ever going to change that promise. His promise is permanent. Point number two. God's promise is gracious. A gracious promise. Look with me at the last verse in our passage. Verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, the word grace isn't in verse 18, but the concept is all over it. Paul, Paul introduces a word here, and actually he does this kind of paragraph by paragraph, just like he said promised spirit in verse 14, and now he's talking about the promise. He drops the word inheritance, and then he's going to pick that up when we go forward. Inheritance. In other words, what we receive from God as his children, a status that we have with him by promise. His promise. We inherit some kind of wealth from him because we are his children. Now, how do we receive that inheritance? By obedience? By keeping the law? No, of course not. By promise. You receive the inheritance by promise. It came to Abraham by promise. He didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it. But God promised it. We see God's grace here in the word gave. I would have just glossed over that word entirely if I hadn't stumbled across these few sentences from reformer John Calvin. Listen to how he explains why the word gave is in this verse. Here's what he writes. Let us carefully remember the reason why in comparing the promise with the law the establishment of the one, the promise, overturns the other. The reason is that the promise has respect to faith and the law to works. Faith receives what is freely given, but to works a reward is paid. And Paul immediately adds, this is still Calvin, God gave it to Abraham, not by requiring some sort of compensation on his part, but by the free promise. For if you view the promise, the blessings, and the inheritance as conditional, 
the word gave would be utterly inapplicable. She's saying, why would he say God gave it to him if he wasn't giving him something undeserved? I mean, if Abraham had to work for God's blessing, Paul wouldn't have been able to say that God gave it to him by a promise. He would have had to say Abraham earned it from God or God, God did his part and Abraham did his part. But Paul doesn't say that because it wouldn't be true. God gave him the promised blessing. End of story. It's undeserved. Abraham didn't work for it, if you know the story. Abraham wasn't looking for it, wasn't asking for it. He was just living his pagan life out in the desert, and God showed up one day and said, hey, I've got this promise for you. God initiated. Then as we saw, God signed and sealed it. Abraham simply received it by faith. And as we've seen already, he received it by faith, and that was counted to him as righteousness. And it is the same for us. The promises of God, the great things that he promises to, to sinners have nothing to do with whether or not we deserve them. In fact, everything we receive from God is completely undeserved, freely offered by a big-hearted, generous God to needy people like you and me who weren't asking for it and could never earn it. Think of it this way. Loving parents don't give their kids food and water and shelter and Christmas presents and ice cream and whatever else because their kids deserve them. That's not a really, it's a dangerous way to parent if you only give your kids things they deserve because they don't, very undeserving and very ungrateful a lot of the time. <laughs> we give those things to our kids because our kids need them. Their need drives our behavior, not what they deserve. And our kids need to know that they're safe and secure and provided for by their parents, that they're loved and accepted by their parents regardless of their behavior. It has nothing to do with deserving. And God gives us what we need, not what we deserve. We need forgiveness. We need acceptance by God. We need reconciliation with God on account of our sins. We need an eternal family. We need new bodies and a new heaven and new earth. This one is fading away. But we don't deserve any of those things. Yet in the gospel, God promises them to us. because he knows we need them, and because he's happy to generously provide what we could never earn. That's the logic of God's gospel promises. We don't work for them. We simply receive grace upon grace upon grace, and then we respond with grateful and humble obedience, not to earn, but to thank. His promise to us is gracious by design. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that you need to earn any of these things he's offering. You can't. You won't. <laughs> Let God be the generous, loving, kind God that he is and simply receive with gratitude the blessings of his acceptance, forgiveness, status as his child. This is all coming in Galatians and the hope of life after death. Listen, if you're not a Christian and you're listening, it really is as simple as receiving a gift. That's faith. 
If you've ever received a gift and been grateful to the person who gave you that gift, you can understand faith. If you feel guilty, receive God's promised forgiveness. If you feel unworthy, receive his promised acceptance. If you feel lonely, receive the promised welcome into his eternal family. And if you feel poor, receive the rich spiritual blessings he alone offers you. Faith in those great promises is all you need. Believe and receive. Point number three. God's promise is Christ-centered. Permanent, gracious, Christ-centered. Look back in the middle of our passage, verse 16. In literary terms, this verse is really an aside. It almost feels awkward that Paul put it in this passage from a literary standpoint. But from a theological perspective, this is the big point. Verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Okay, this is grade A Bible interpretation, okay? This is impressive, detailed, exegetical work. Now, to be clear, there is a sense in which Abraham's offspring is plural. In other places in the Bible, in fact, Paul quotes it as plural. But the word in the original language is a singular word that can be either plural or singular. This is how brilliant this is that God wove this into his scripture. Verse 16 is a brilliant literary insight by the Apostle Paul. The offspring of Abraham is both singular and plural. In its plural form, of course, it refers to everyone who believes in the promise made to Abraham, but in the singular form, it refers to Jesus Christ. For God promised eternal fellowship Offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky who would bring blessing to all nations and a promised land where God would dwell among his people. He promised those things first and foremost to his son, Jesus Christ. God the Father made a promise to God the Son. Do you think he would ever go back on that promise? Not a chance. That's why we can be sure it's permanent and gracious. We can bank on this promise because it was made by the Father to the Son. And we become recipients of all these blessings, not merely by believing in the promise, but by believing in the promised Messiah, whose name is Jesus. And this is why Paul has said over and over again, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, it is in him that you receive these great and precious promises. This is where Paul's opponents have gotten off track and why he's so insistent in his correction. They've misread and misunderstood their Bibles by focusing on how their actions should secure the blessing 
rather than keeping their attention on how Christ actually secures the blessings for them. And this is a danger we must all avoid for remember everything God does is ultimately for his son. I may make you a little uncomfortable because I want it to be about me. Everything he does for you is ultimately about and for his son. Listen to one scholar, author, Graham Goldsworthy, make this very point. Oh, listen to this. this I, these few sentences should make your heart sing. Every word in Scripture, he writes, points to Jesus and finds its meaning in him. Every word. See what Paul's doing here? Every word, even that word offspring. Every word in Scripture points to Jesus and finds its meaning in him. Furthermore, John 1, 1 through 3 and Colossians 1, 16 tell us that Jesus Christ is the eternal word of God by which the universe was created. These two passages, he says, indicate that his saving work in the world was not an afterthought because of sin, but was the eternal purpose of God. It was the plan of God before creation and from all eternity. Upon this plan, God created all things. If we can imagine God drawing up plans for the universe before he created it, and if we could examine these plans, we would not see Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, but Jesus Christ in the Gospel. The significance of this, he writes, is worth repeating. Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection is the fixed point of reference for the understanding of the whole of reality. A theory of everything. No theory. A man, Jesus Christ, a God-man, came to save. You want to understand why the world exists, why you exist, why suffering exists? You want to understand the Bible and its points and its promises? Then you have to see how they are all tributaries leading you to Jesus Christ. He is the point of everything. The point of the promise to Abraham here is the glorification of Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. And now through him, if we believe in him dying in our place and rising to eternal life, we access all the blessings promised to him. We get God's greatest blessings through Jesus Christ, not through our efforts. Now, we'll often be tempted to say, that just seems like too good of a deal. There's just, there's got to be an asterisk. There's got to be something else. He, this is what we end up saying in our hearts, he can't be enough. There must be something I have to do. But in those moments, if you hear that in your mind, in your heart, the gospel must not be enough. Oh, you can say back to yourself, self Christ is enough. He secures God's blessing for me. He was cursed so that I would be blessed. Don't let your gaze drift from him as the one through whom you receive all of God's promised blessings. Theologian Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology points out that we can have an added degree of security 
in our relationship with God because we know that He governs our relationship by a set of promises He will never change. God governs His relationship with you and I by a set of promises that He will never change. We have just taken our minds and hearts to those promises, and they will never change. However, it is not uncommon. I want you to hear this loud and clear. It is not uncommon for Christians to struggle to believe that God actually accepts us. It's not strange. It's not strange to wonder if you're really going to make it to heaven at the end. But I'm thankful that God has graciously given us passages like this to remind us that that promised blessing isn't contingent upon my behavior or my attitude. It's a gracious, unearned, undeserved promise. A promise made first and foremost to Jesus Christ and, and the thing I need to do most often is get my eyes off of myself and back on him so that I can today, in my heart, experience the refreshing and soul-strengthening assurance that all of his promises will come true. One pastor wrote, and I appreciate this, a, a letter to the Christian struggling. Dear struggling Christian, if our gaze is always within which is what everybody out there is going to tell you you should do. Just look within yourself. Dangerous. Dear struggling Christian, if our gaze is always within, assurance will remain fleeting. No doubt, we need to examine our lives and test the fruit, but true assurance, lasting assurance, secure assurance comes from looking to Christ and our union with him by faith. Look to him on the cross. Look to him raised to indestructible life. Look to him now in heaven, praying for you and preparing to return for you. And the more you look to him, the more you will find that you can be sure that you will receive, you will receive every promised blessing from God. He signed it, sealed it. He will do it. Let's pray that we would trust in him. Lord, you have made very great and precious promises to us. And we come and confess that it is not because of anything we've done or deserved, but simply because of what we need. We need you to not treat us as our sins deserve. We need you to be merciful to us. We need you to help us grow. We need you to become more humble, more obedient, more grateful. We need you. And we thank you that even as we do live with such great needs, we have a great Savior who has made great promises and will make sure that we receive everything that has been promised all by grace all for the glory of Jesus Christ 
and the lifting up of his name. We thank you, Lord, that today, though there are many uncertainties in our life, we don't have to be uncertain about this. You love us and you are for us and we will spend eternity delighted by you. We don't have to question that. And I pray that for those questioning that today, their trust in your gracious, permanent promise would grow. So give us faith that we might see again and believe and be changed. In a moment, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.